So today, what we're going to do is we are going to conclude a two-part message that I began last week called, What Does This Mean? When we think about the fact that Palm Sunday and then Easter Sunday leaves us scratching our head a number of times, one of the things that we talked about last week when we talked about Palm Sunday is that Jesus enters into Jerusalem to challenge the claims of those in power. And he fulfills a long-standing prophecy by the prophet Zechariah in chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. And when he enters into Jerusalem, what he does is he enters in on a donkey, not on a war horse. He is a peaceful king that is coming to speak peace to the nations. He comes humbly. He reenacts the military parade that brought Pontius Pilate to town every year during the Passover. But Jesus comes as a lampoon to those in power, specifically Pontius Pilate and Herod Antipas and Caiaphas, who play prominent roles in the execution of Christ. Ultimately, these individuals are carrying out the work of the evil one against the righteous one. We saw last week that when Jesus came into Jerusalem, there were some Gentiles, some Greek Gentiles that were seeking him out, and he told them that this is his hour of glorification, and this hour of glorification was also an hour of judgment, and John chapter 12, verses 30 and 31 reminds us that at the crucifixion, we see God's judgment on the world system that is built upon power and violence. We see at the crucifixion that Satan is cast out as the ruler of this world. And we see that the crucifixion, God is calling the world to himself. We said that last week that Jesus is dragging all people to himself. But Jesus does another dangerous thing. The next day he goes into Jerusalem and enters the temple area. And there he overthrows the exchange that is going on when there is this religious facade, but it is being used as a way to make money. And he drives out the money changers from the temple area. And these two actions, his entry into Jerusalem as well as cleansing the temple, are two actions that are going to later backfire upon him later in the week. The empire will fight back, and so a conspiracy to murder Jesus comes to a top priority. So on Friday, Good Friday, Jesus is arrested, condemned, and crucified, and the threat of his potential kingdom has been eliminated by the Roman Empire. But, but today, Easter Sunday, is the other end of the story. It's the other bookend that began on Palm Sunday. So let's ask the question, what does Easter mean? Through the resurrection of Jesus, we see the exposure of the principalities and powers that they are defeated. Easter will subvert the pretentious claim to the legitimacy of violence and power. And ironically, it is not the Lord of glory that is shamed on Good Friday. The shame is heaped upon Jesus, but it is turned back upon those who put him there. And what we find is that now 
all power, whether it is political power, economic power, or religious power, is judged in light of the love of the one who hangs upon the cross. Easter becomes the ultimate verification that Jesus is the world's one true king. This is the element that is critically important that we celebrate this morning. There are two thoughts that I have today, and I'm breaking this message into two parts. One is this claim, Easter validates the person and position of Jesus as Savior and King of mankind. And then after we take communion, I want to take a few moments and reestablish this point. Easter celebrates the victory of Jesus over death and the assurance of the resurrection of those that we have already lost to death. So we're going to break this into two parts, and here's point number one. Easter validates the person and position of Jesus as Savior and King of all mankind. In 1 Corinthians 15, 14, the Apostle Paul says, If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. If we believe that God really does love us enough to send his Son into the world, then the resurrection is the evidence of God's love for and intimate involvement with his creation. God did not give up on the world and its inhabitants. God loves us to the point of becoming a human being. He came to bring deliverance from destruction. Furthermore, Jesus proclaimed the coming of God's kingdom in history to restore the world and enacted the kingdom by his healing of diseased bodies, casting out demons, and challenging the oppressive social order of his time, thus offering hope to all mankind. The resurrection is the sign that validates this work that he came to do. Both in his person and in his position, the signs that Jesus gave keep pointing uh, uh, pointing for us to notice them. And sometimes we do. We notice them, sometimes we will ignore them, and hopefully, most often, we ponder them. The Gospel of John is built on signs. There are at least seven of them in the book. But for our purposes this morning, I want you to think about John chapter 11. It is the story of Jesus' entrance into a little village called Bethany. It is there that he is close friends with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. He and his disciples have been traveling about teaching and performing miracles, but they hear word that Lazarus is sick. And so in due time, they make their way to this little village in Bethany. But by the time that Jesus gets there, Lazarus has already died. When they hear that Jesus is coming into the village, Martha runs out to meet Jesus there, and she says to Jesus, if you would have been here, my brother would have lived. And of course, Jesus then uses this as a sign, and it's built upon a statement. He looks at Martha, and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And Martha says, I know my brother will be raised in the last day, but Jesus wants to give a sign that is a prelude of that ultimate resurrection that will happen in the future. Well, by this time, Lazarus has been in the grave for four days, and as the old King James Version says, 
by the fourth day he stinketh. In other words, there's an odor that is emanating from him. And those that come alongside of Jesus and observe him stepping up to the tomb, notice something very profound. He steps up to the tomb and he begins to weep. John chapter 11, verse 35 is the shortest verse in the New Testament. And all it says is Jesus wept. And as he cries over the loss of his friend, he then steps forward and calls Lazarus and says, Lazarus, come out. And they take the grave clothes off of Lazarus. And what we find him doing is giving to us a picture of not only his power, but the fact that he himself is the sign of the resurrection that is still to come. Jesus is making a claim of power over death. Now here's the problem. Jesus himself will die very soon after this miracle. Jesus knows his hour is coming, but like he said to those Greek Gentiles, it is the hour that he is glorified. Being disguised under the disfigurement of an ugly crucifixion and death, the Christ form is paradoxically the clearest revelation of who God really is. God is like Jesus. We have not always known that, but now we do. And it makes all the difference in the world because now in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, there is the promise that God continually looks upon us with love and forgiveness. He continually reminds us that he wants us to be a part of his family. And as he rolls back the stone from the tomb of Lazarus, it is a prefigurement of that morning when the women would go to his tomb and the stone would be rolled away. We see later in John's account that when Mary Magdalene comes to the stone, the stone has been rolled away and she begins crying because she thinks that somebody has stolen the body of Jesus. It is there that she meets an angel and she is told, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, he is risen. And it is there. She notices a man, it's quite dark, it's early in the morning, and she thinks that man is the gardener. And as this man begins to speak, she recognizes his voice, and she says, Rabboni, which means teacher. It is Jesus. It is Jesus that speaks to Mary, and she takes off. And she goes and she tells the men that Jesus is alive. But there are some that still have their doubts. There's one a couple chapters later by the name of Thomas. And Thomas is often dubbed Doubting Thomas. For whatever reason, when Jesus appears to his disciples, Thomas is not present. We don't know if he's disillusioned, if he gave up hope that Jesus is actually who he said he is. But what we know is when Jesus appears to his disciples, the very first words out of his mouth are, peace upon you, peace upon you. Now, he doesn't let Thomas go on in his doubting. He takes Thomas aside and he shows Thomas his wounds. And he says, notice the nail scars in my hand and in my side. And it is there and in that moment when Thomas sees Jesus risen from the dead, that Thomas cries out 
this statement that is validating everything that Jesus did. My Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. This account validates the claims that Jesus made for himself. So how do we have the same kind of assurance that Jesus gave Mary and Martha and Thomas and the disciples? Well, that is one of the purposes of communion. When we take it, we take the opportunity to remind ourselves that Jesus will meet us here. But before we take communion, what we want to do is sing together, and I'm going to have the team come back up at this time. Use your worship liturgy, and let's sing together this wonderful song that he is king of kings. So we're going to come and take communion. Hopefully, when you came in uh, today, you received one of these hourglasses. On one side of it is the bread, and on the other side is the cup. And uh, as we take communion, we are reminding ourselves that when we take communion, we have the opportunity to come again and meet Christ afresh. So here's the invitation to the Lord's table. This is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little, you who have been here often and you who have not been here long, you who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come because it is the Lord who invites you. It is his will that those who want him should meet him here. Later in the week, Jesus would be observing the Passover meal with his disciples. And in that upper room, he took a piece of bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. And then later in the meal, he picks up a cup that is filled with wine and it is the third cup of the Passover, and he lifts that cup up and he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. So we take a piece of bread that reminds us of his body that is given for us. We take the cup and we remind ourselves that we live under a new covenant of grace. And by these two elements, the bread and the cup, we meet the Lord. There's all kinds of theological debate in terms of what does this really mean? Some people call this the Eucharist, some call it communion, some call it the Lord's table. But no matter what you call it or what shade you might have of theology concerning this, it's a reminder that we are all welcome to the table, that there is an empty chair for us to step into and to reconnect with the living Lord. So. If you'll take the side that has the bread and open it up and take out the piece of bread. Let's remind ourselves today that when Jesus broke the bread with his disciples, he said, this is my body given for, to you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. And then after the dinner was done, and what a dinner it was, 
in the course of that dinner, he looks at Judas, who has already sold him out for 30 pieces of silver, and he says, do what you need to do. And Judas leaves the room, and he goes out to betray the Lord. And he looks to his disciples, and he reminds them of something very important. All men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And he just demonstrated this. If you were on the last night of your life, what, were your, what, what would be your concern? How much is this going to hurt? How much am I going to be tortured? You know what was on Jesus' mind? His disciples, he stoops down, he washes his disciples' feet. He reminds us that those who follow him are called to be servants. And so the cup of the new covenant, if you want to open that up at this time, is a reminder ultimately that he is the servant of all mankind. And he calls us to be servants to other people as well. He takes the cup and he reminds us of this truth that we are under the umbrella of grace, that we have been given eternal life by grace alone. He takes the cup and he says, drink it in remembrance of me. So we have looked at part one of what Easter means. What does this mean? Well, Easter reminds us that Jesus has been validated by his resurrection from the dead in terms of his position and his purpose. He is King of Kings and he is Lord of Lords. But it doesn't stop there. We are told that Easter in the celebration of Jesus' victory from the grave is also the assurance of our resurrection as well. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and boy, it's a long chapter that it is all about the resurrection of Christ. We already said that Paul reminded us that if Christ is not raised, our faith is useless. However, he says Christ has been raised from the dead, and he reminds us that his resurrection is the first fruits of those that will follow in his likeness. When he died upon the cross, this incarnate Lord of heaven and earth absorbed the poison of all sin into himself. He rose again. He is the first fruits of a whole new creation. Imagine this. We have been battling this virus now for over a year. The coronavirus, this pandemic, for over a year. What would it be like? What would it be like if there was one person that stood in the middle of this parking lot and had each one of you step up and breathe on him? And he absorbs and takes from you the coronavirus. And of course, that coronavirus kills him. But... But three days later, he rises again from the dead. What would it be like for a man or a woman to stand in the middle and keep absorbing the virus that ruins mankind and then conquers it, conquering death through death? The resurrection then becomes our great hope. 
because it's not only a one-off. It's not just Jesus that is raised from the dead. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 reminds us that there is also the resurrection of the dead ones, the ones that have already gone before. Now, there are all kinds of mysterious things related to this. Imagine, imagine if on the day that Jesus was crucified, when he breathes his last, when he says it is finished, there is the veil that separates the Holy of Holies from the holy place, and it rends in two from top to bottom. All of a sudden, this divine sign is not only this is my son, but it is a reminder that the way into God's presence has been opened up to us. And it is a reminder to each and every one of us that as we enter into the presence of God, we too have new life forevermore. And then there's this mysterious little phrase that is in the Gospel of John, that when the veil was rent in two from top to bottom, the grave opened up and there were those that were resurrected. And what you'll find as you look at that is each of these individuals become a foretaste of the promise that Jesus is going to redeem all mankind and the entire cosmos as well. In his resurrection, Jesus resurrects the dead ones. And Easter has an implication for each and every one uh, loved one that we have lost along the way. It's a reminder that it's not the end. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is not a one-off personal victory for Jesus alone. It is not just a happy ending for him alone. Here's the good news of Easter. In the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the resurrection of the dead ones. The resurrection has cosmic implications, and it's the assurance of bodily resurrection. It is the arrival of a new heaven and a new earth. And so while we continue to wait for this pandemic to end, we are reminded that the over 500,000 people who have lost their life from this deadly disease in our country alone, and 2.7 million people who have lost their life worldwide, the story of their life is not over. It's not over. There is the promise of resurrection and new life. There's the promise that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. There is the promise that nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Neither height nor depth, nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ. That is built into the meaning of Easter. Even before Jesus gave the statement of being the resurrection and the life, Martha believed that there would be a, a resurrection on the last day. Jesus was not raised alone, but his resurrection launched other resurrections, and it becomes a token of what is to occur for the entire human race. You read that passage in John chapter 5, verse 25 and 28. It is a reminder that Jesus is raised to remove the threat of God's good world, namely death itself. So what does Easter mean? It means that God in Christ became mortal. Jesus is fully human, that he might enter into death, that he might descend into the earth, that he might be raised from it, that he might fill the whole universe. 
He descended and ascended to bring restoration to the universe. And like the old Christian hymn writer put, Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, and upon those in the tomb bestowing life. That goes all the way back to the second century. In Christ, the world arose. The things that have held mankind in bondage have been defeated. And so to die, ultimately, is to encounter Christ. And that is the great promise of Easter. So, as I conclude, we have seen two things today. Number one, Easter validates the person and position of Jesus as Savior and King of mankind. And secondly, Easter celebrates the victory of Jesus over death and the assurance of the resurrection of the dead ones and the reunion for all of us who miss them so. It has a present-day dynamic for us as well. For those of us who are still drawing breath in this life, it is not merely a recitation of a single corpse. Easter is the affirmation of a whole new world, a whole new kingdom, a world that moves from violence to peace, from fear to faith, from hostility to love, from a culture of consumption to a culture of servanthood to generosity and to love. Now is the time to be raised from our deadness that is found in fear and hostility and exclusion and violence to walk in the newness of life that is available to each and every one of us found in the person of Jesus Christ. Easter, my friends, is our great opportunity to remind ourselves that we live day by day within the power of the one who is the King of kings and Lord of lords, as we have just sung. And it is a reminder that each and every day, his grace is sufficient for us. His grace is enough for what we are facing today and into tomorrow. So I'm going to have the team come back again, and we're going to sing, Your Grace is Enough. Maybe this chorus that we sing so remember your people, remember your children, remember your promise, O oh God. Maybe that is a prayer for us here today. Your grace is enough. It's enough for me. So let's sing together in celebration of this hope that only Easter can bring to us. Your grace is enough.